welcome back to another episode of Mesoamerican Studies On Air. As always, I'm your host, Katherine Wild, and I'm so excited to share with you this interview with Katherine McCarthy, one of my dear, dear friends. Katherine McCarthy is an art historian working primarily with art of the ancient Americas. Through a study of art, architecture, and landscape, McCarthy seeks to unpack how culture and identity are rooted in the natural and built environment. In addition, her interest in the history of photography and contemporary art aims to connect the indigenous realities of the present with its roots in the past. Catherine McCarthy gained her BFA at the Savannah College of Art and Design, her MA from the University of Texas at Austin, and is in the first year of her doctoral program in art history and archaeology at Columbia University in New York. Catherine, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I'm so excited to talk about your research now in its completed form. Of course. You know, I always love a good mezzo chat. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so why, why don't we start? Obviously, I was there with you as you were going through this research process, but just for everyone else who wasn't there, let's start at the beginning. So tell me a little bit about your thesis topic and how you chose it. Yeah, so my thesis topic ended up coming out of a grad hour presentation um, during our undergrad seminar on the Aztec. We had to present on any kind of object that we found interesting or a little odd. Um, And so I was slipping, just kind of going through all the textbooks to try to see if there's a piece that really struck me as something that was unusual. So it could be an odd drum or um, a textile or whatever that kind of caught our eye. And so there's a monument that I came across that, I mean, it's physical format is like nothing I'd ever seen before out of um, the Aztec empire. And so it's a aqueduct relief and that's kind of, it's a complicated and loaded title, but an aqueduct relief um, from the ruler Awitzot um, from 1499. And it was this kind of long rectangular monument that has significant areas of damage to it. But then the imagery on either side is slightly different, but for the most part, fairly identical, which is not a complete oddity in terms of Aztec design, but it was something that struck me as interesting enough that I'd never seen anything like it before. So I was interested to kind of explore that further because it seemed like this odd little stone and there was nothing quite written about it. Like I could probably sum up all the research that's been done in photocopies in about 15 pages. (laughs) So it led for a lot of room for research and it seemed like it had been kind of abandoned and kind of shoved to the periphery of a lot of different texts and even in the galleries. So it kind of was this orphan piece that really caught my eye. I remember when you told me where it was in the museum, it really is just kind of left off to the side, right? It's not, it's not one of the pieces that they put on display for everyone to see, even though it is on display for everyone to see, but it's kind of just an afterthought almost. Yes. And it's located behind the stone of Tizoc, which really doesn't help. Um, so it's, you know, you can watch tours go through and everyone's crowded around this big stone of Tizoc and, I, I sat for a while in the galleries and watched people kind of react to it to see if anyone notices it. And most people didn't give it more than 45 seconds um, wow. before moving on. Um, so it's definitely something that I just keep seeing people in real life and um, in scholarship kind of brushing over. Right. 
So what about this piece was so interesting to you? So it was partially, I was interested in Awitsu as a ruler um, because he does have that kind of legacy of, of conquest, really, and expanding the Aztec Empire to its greatest extent. And so I was interested in him because I do have a strong interest in landscape and territory. And so if he's the person who is giving the Aztec all of this territory or, you know, leading the campaigns to help them gain all this territory, that that's clearly one of his focuses as well. But then the more I read about him, the more I found out that he did also focus so much on infrastructure within Tenochtitlan. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of parallel that as much as he's focusing on expansion, he also was really interested in infrastructure. And that might be my nerdy historic preservation background, but I found that really interesting. And this is one of the only monuments where you actually see him. This stone really stands apart as kind of one of two um, major pieces that actually feature him. So I was really interested in seeing what made this monument so significant that that it would surface as one of the only monuments with him. And also it's if you look at it, that it's got Awitzel conflated with the god Quetzalcoatl, which I thought was also really an interesting um, choice artistically to make and to see kind of what does that symbolize, that this stone is covered in feathered serpents and the god Quetzalcoatl. And so kind of what does that signify that this is one of his only representations and it's done in a way surrounded by feathered serpents? Yeah, and I think I think now would be a really good time to talk about the imagery, the iconography that's on the stone. So can you tell me a little bit more about what you saw when you really sat down and started looking at this piece? Yeah, so I think primarily one of my first real discoveries when I was actually with the stone, I was very thankful to receive funding from UT's um, Department of Art History to go to Mexico City to see the stone in person. And one of the things I noticed was in a lot of the images, the first thing you kind of see is that about a third of the stone is missing. It, I believe it's actually more than a third, but that's kind of the common phrase that people use. Mm-hmm. Um, so with one end, that's been kind of crumbled away. So I came to kind of lo- look at that to see if there's any evidence of purposeful defacement. But I also discovered that there's a whole chunk on the underside of the stone that was also missing. And so through, I mean, I think they mounted it very, very well at the museum. So it doesn't come across as the stone is lacking in any way, but it is significant that it cuts out a big chunk of the iconography. Mm-hmm. Um, the main figure on either side, you've got kind of two main actors. You've got Awitzol and Quetzalcoatl on both sides of the stone. So on the broadest side, you have, it starts from the point of loss, then you have got the date glyph of 1499 or what transits to our modern calendar of 1499 then seated awitzol kind of piercing his ear in a bloodletting ritual and on one side you've got then quetzalcoatl next to him and in full view and on the other side you've got that same date glyph ear piercing and then but quetzalcoatl is superimposed beneath awitzol's on top of quetzalcoatl and the imagery so it's almost like he's supporting him on one side, but fusing with him on the other. Um, and then the borders of the stone, the top and the sides that we still have left, there's nothing underneath. And I was able to confirm that with the curator there, who thankfully stuck her head under that very heavy stone while they were moving it back into the galleries <laughs> to check. <laughs> um, but there's 
nothing underneath of it, but on the sides there are kind of undulating serpents and what appears to be part of a water glyph that would have continued on to something else, but that part is sadly lost. You mentioned the water glyphs. I would love for you to tell the story of why we think this is an aqueduct relief, why this is associated with water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of a sad and ironic story of this monument when you look at the history of what was going on in 1499 in what is now Mexico City. So Awitzol kind of recognized the need for additional water resources. Of course, that's always been an issue in Tenochtitlan and in modern Mexico City. And so in an effort to kind of bring water into the empire, he used these springs at Aquiquesco and created an aqueduct to bring the water into the city. Other rulers told him, this is a terrible idea. And his reaction to that was to kill the other rulers and proceed anyways. So in true Aztec fashion, he just forced his way ahead. And it was, there was actually, Duran accounts these incredible ceremonies once the aqueduct was open and with regalia and priests marching through the city and it was really a moment of celebration because this water was so critical. And so it's believed that, that this monument was created to celebrate that because it has that same date. And that's the only significant water-related event that happens at that time. Unfortunately, soon after um, the aqueduct was opened and all of the celebrating was concluded, they did falter and flooded the city pretty significantly, causing a lot of destruction. So unfortunately, this monument celebrates something that was a great, great accomplishment for probably about a month and then pretty quickly became devastating to the city. So it's a little ironic that this was the event that he's really immortalized for since it's known as one of his greatest downfalls. There's some research that's not quite substantiated, but it's fun to think about that says that Awitzel actually passed away because he had been hit by debris that was released by these floods and that led to his death. I don't believe that's true, but I mean, it would really be the nail in the coffin of this kind of unfortunate situation. But on the plus side, it did end up, Awitzel kind of rebuilt the city to make up for it, we should say, and put in some beautiful, beautiful gardens. So, you know, you got some major destruction, but you've got some beautiful gardens out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that you you really hit the nail on the head in the beginning when you mentioned that he was interested in expanding the empire, but he was also preoccupied with bettering the city itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this, even the um, effort it took to create this awkward was not insignificant and it shows that he still keeps returning to the central core and the central heart of the Aztec empire despite making it so much larger he still has a lot of attention and focus on the betterment of life for the people who lived in Tenochtitlan and kind of honoring this heart of the empire despite all of his time away from it right so I know that the archaeological context of this relief is a little complicated. Could you tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that and what we do know and what we don't? Yeah, so that is definitely one of the most challenging things about this project. And I consulted with the other scholars who have written on this. I've had many long chats with um, Emily Umberger and the curator who oversees the Sala Mexica at the Museo Nacional where the monument is located. And we really don't know. We don't have any archaeological information of when it was originally found, 
But when scholars kind of came across it and were able to first identify it as an Aztec monument was in the 1920s because it had been used as a a building block to build a slaughterhouse. So it had kind of been picked up to say, oh, that could be a good big building stone to kind Mm -hmm. of build up this modern building. So it was discovered in that context, which really makes it difficult to say where originally specifically it was located and so then how we could have seen it functioning. And so we've had to make a lot of guesses about how it would have been used, where it would have been located, because we don't have a dig site and we don't have all that kind of information because it's been taken and used in other contexts before it was found out to be an Aztec monument at all. Yeah, yeah, and that does it does complicate it. But I think the iconography on there, would you agree, it's pretty clear what it's referring to. Yes, and yeah, that's one thing that in... There's one element of scholarship that tries to counter that it's for an aqueduct or has any relation to the aqueduct, but I think it's pretty clear that, I mean, with the dates, you can line it up that there's nothing else it would have been associated with except for this aqueduct opening the water glyph on the top also insinuates that it's for this kind of aqueous purpose, um, along with feathered serpents, which are very similar to serpents they have in the Maya that are water serpents. And so there's... A lot of evidence for this being an aqueduct monument or monument related to aqueduct or waterwork of some sort. So it is a little odd that nobody thought to take pause and say, hey, this might be significant before using it to build. But I'm glad we found it when we did, so it doesn't deteriorate anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what conclusions have you come to as a result of your research here? So one of the main things I wanted to do was to, one, just bring this monument to light and kind of give it a little bit more of the spotlight than it's received before. But what I really was looking at is um, how it stands as a symbol of kind of ideas about territory and boundary making within the Aztec empire. So if this would have been at the site of the aqueduct where a lot of scholars kind of agree that it would have been placed where the aqueduct entered the city, kind of off to the side, maybe signaling that it was Awitzol's creation. That was, we have him to thank for this glorious resource that if that is the case, then it would have also been a kind of an entry point to the city. And so I thought it was interesting that at this kind of entry point for both water and potentially for people, that this would be one of these signaling devices. So I kind of looked at it as an um, example of how the Aztec conceptualized this space. And there's, of course, with the date glyphs, there's a time element to it as well. Yeah, so I think you've done a really good job of bringing this monument to light because there really wasn't much written about it. You, I mean, you said how many pages had been written on it before you dived in? I mean, I think if I were to, like photocopy every page and put them together into a packet, I would be lucky to hit 15 pages. Wow. Yeah, probably less. Yeah. So your research really has been crucial for bringing more information to light about this piece. I'm hoping so. Yeah, I'm hoping that'll get some more recognition. I was able to, um, as I said before, meet with the curator of the Salamashika um, to kind of discuss this piece and even they don't have a lot of plans for this monument, but I think it is really significant and I hope that it, it gets incorporated into more things curatorially as well as in the vein of academic research. 
Yeah. And I think this is a really good reminder for all of us, you know, to when we're going through these these rooms in the museums, these different galleries, to really stop and look at some of the pieces that might have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can write one of the you know, four million papers on the sunstone, but there's always, you know, opportunities to find some little objects that might look a little off or a little different and really explore those. And that can be a, a fun and wild ride, <laughs> um, yeah. but I think is always really interesting. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on today. And I look forward to having you back in the future so we can hear more about your new research. Thank you so much. For more information on McCarthy and her research, check out MesoamericanStudiesOnline.com under the section for Season 1 of Mesoamerican Studies On Air. As always, thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week when I interview cognitive linguist Agnieszka Haman about her research in Mayan languages. See you next week. Thank you.